guys, welcome back to another episode of the Profe Fitness Podcast. This is episode 11, and with us today we have Alberto Nunez and Eric Helms from a 3D Muscle Journey. And obviously I'm here with the other editor, Yusuf, as well. So, guys, for those people who aren't aware of you, do you want to just give a brief introduction of who you are and your achievements in bodybuilding and powerlifting? So, Eric, do you want to go first? Sure. First off, a uh, big honor to be back, and uh, thanks for having us. As far as who I am, I'm one-fourth of the four-headed beast that is 3D Muscle Journey. I've been someone who enjoys picking things up that are, that are as heavy as I can lift for about the past 10 years. I've been competing in uh, natural bodybuilding and uh, raw powerlifting pretty much since the onset of that, maybe two years into it, and pretty quickly fell in love with I guess the, the practice and coaching side of it just as much as I did uh, the competing side of it. So I've been pursuing my education in the area and working with clients for a long time as well. So I'd say as far as accolades, nothing crazy, but uh, managed to win a professional status in the INBA back in 2011 as, as a natural bodybuilder. And I'm knocking on the door of a 400 Wilkes as far as my raw powerlifting total. So I'm solid above average. And yeah, I'm pursuing my PhD currently in uh, strength conditioning, looking at autoregulation. And I did a master's degree in bodybuilding nutrition that I completed last year at AUT. That's pretty much me. Awesome. I'll bet. Do you want to go next? You know, I think one, one thing that folks who do follow us don't really understand is that me and Eric haven't been competing for very long when you think about it, especially when you compare it to Jeff Alberts, who's another 3D muscle journey coach. We both competed for the first time in, in 2007. Technically, I've only had yeah four competitive bodybuilding seasons, so we're relatively new, and I think and powerlifting kind of the same thing i think we had our first meet in in 2007 i think our any success we have had within either sport i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've been very open to applying i guess stuff that works when it comes to to our bodybuilding i wouldn't consider myself genetically from mars or anything so it kind of just happened naturally that at, at a certain point we wanted to spew what we've been taught you know because i think uh, we were very fortunate in that our first contest when we first started this, you know, it was guys like Dr. Joe Klimczewski and, and Lane Norton. So we were very fortunate in our bodybuilding upbringing. And I think, you know, a lot of that obviously led to some success on the stage and on the platform. You know, after that, especially after in the West Coast, no one knew who these guys were. and We were so behind. So we took what we were doing and we were doing pretty good for ourselves. And people started to take notice. So naturally, 3D Muscle Journey formed. And here we are today, both competitive athletes, but then also 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 coaches yeah that's our story I think you certainly can't overstate the importance of starting or hitting the ground running and knowing what the correct determinant inputs are from the beginning I think both of us wasted a lot of time when we started training just following kind of muscle magazines and basically all the all the wrong inputs as you guys say you know a lot of trainees that train seriously do have the dedication desire discipline but put it in the wrong channels and end up getting subpar results as a result so you, you're relatively new to bodybuilding and we've seen that you, you both bodybuild and powerlift and there's a lot of crossover in both the inputs and the rewards that you get from that. What do you do to allow the, for the differences in programming and nutrition between the two sports? You know, I'll, I'll go first on this one because your situation was a bit more complicated for a minute there because you picked up a third sport, dude. So, um, you know, I think for me it's, it's pretty straightforward because, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to get stronger and progress in the gym and, I mean, that's, that's the heart and soul of powerlifting uh, and I love the big lifts because uh, to me they're not just physically engaging but the mental part of it you know the technique part of it just really I guess it, it keeps me engaged whereas the, a lot of the typical bodybuilding stuff like the hack squat leg extension it's kind of brainless you know so I don't enjoy those too much I think a lot of it has to do with enjoyment you don't have to powerlift to 
be a great natural bodybuilder and, and vice versa. But I don't think they conflict as much as a lot of people think. It, it might, basically my approach, and I think this would be the approach to most other folks, is for sure work on getting stronger on your big three. And in addition to that, you know, the body parts that don't grow very well on their own without specific attention, you know, those, and we all have those body parts. That's where the majority of my bodybuilding work goes towards. So it, it's, it's really simple. It's a lot of big three lifting, and then I'll pick up the spares with isolation movements for body parts such as, you know, my, my calves or, or, or triceps, things that just don't necessarily grow very well on their own. So focusing on the powerlifting primarily and then filling up the remaining gaps with assistance movements, isolation. Because, yeah, interesting you say that because Eric is coaching both of us and he won't allow either of us to do curls or lateral raises. And you know, all, all, all we want to do is get big arms and he's just conned us into powerlifting. Ne- neither of us wanted to powerlift at all to begin with. We just wanted big arms and shoulders. And uh, so, yeah. No, we're obviously joking. But um, <laughs> what about the nutrition side of things, Alberto? Do you find that powerlifting is more suited to off-season and then when bodybuilding becomes more of a focus, you obviously get into a, a, a dieting phase and then does training change with that or is it more or less the same throughout the off-season as well? Regardless of whether I'm dieting or not, I think the only things that really do change is I just have to be a bit more realistic in regards to how much I can recover. That's probably the main difference. And I I think now more than ever, and this is kind of off topic here, but I think that powerlifting, it's just not the same powerlifting that it was 10 years ago. I think uh, we're getting to that point where I wouldn't say powerlifters are really concerned with, you know, the way they, they, they don't want to look like a physique athlete but they're paying a bit more attention to their nutrition, you know, and they're, they're seeing that, hey, I, I, can, I can be 20 pounds lighter than I used to be and just as strong and if not stronger. And I, I, I think guys like, you know, Bryce Lewis and, you know, even go as far as a guy like Dan Green, who, you know, you look at his physique, you can't help but, you know, as a kid say, Meyer, you know, so you can have both. Yeah, I think, I think to me um, that, that's the main variable is if I'm dieting or not, it just comes back to, you know, how much can I realistically recover from? Okay. Eric, do you want to cover your take on it? And then uh, I understand that you took it weightlifting as well, Olympic weightlifting. So I imagine things changed again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit kind of the, I'll touch on some things Berto didn't cover and then I'll give you the personal perspective. I think, you know, powerlifting is a great vehicle because in essence, you've got three lifts. One's a lower body lift, one's an upper body lift, and one's a full body lift. So they're in some form, typically most bodybuilders do a squat, a deadlift, and some kind of horizontal press regardless. So it's really just, uh, you know, a vehicle you could use. And the more we come to understand about what the roots of hypertrophy are, and then it's just volume, we start to go, oh, I could get my volume with lower reps on those three lifts and, and more more sets. Then, you know, pick apart and attack my physique with the isolation movements, like, like Berto was saying, and, and focus on the supplementary. So I think it's actually a pretty dang easy fit to mesh bodybuilding with powerlifting, especially when, you know, some of the things that, that come along with dieting for a long period of time and the reality of being a natural bodybuilder who takes a long period to make progress, you know. A lot of our athletes don't compete every year. We don't compete every year. Just because, you know, if you have to diet for six months and then it takes a few months to fully recover, it leaves you with these very short off-seasons if you plan on being an annual competing bodybuilder. So it's a great way to stay focused and keep your weight in check by being in a weight class restricted strength sport. It keeps you lean and it keeps you focused on progressive overload and it's really fun. And it's a nice break from, you know, going up to a judge after a show and finding out you know why you placed the way you did because who showed up in their opinion and then they thought maybe your color was better or the lighting in the center of the stage was slightly better it's as much as i love bodybuilding it's kind of a subjective sport and you have to really kind of just let go of what happens on the stage you know in a meet you can quibble about whether or not you hit depth but in the end you either squatted the weight or you didn't 
it's a different feel. It's nice. There's less stress related to it for me, at least. So yeah, I think they're a great fit. And then as far as me, yeah. So I love anything related to lifting a barbell. And ever since I first got into lifting, watching Olympic weightlifters put up more than my squat over their head and stand up with it just made me feel like these guys were the, were the gods of the, the weight room. And I've always had a little bit of a fascination with that. And I have kind of tried my hand at it recently. And I'm, I'm really not that good. But I expected that powerlifting and Olympic lifting would go hand in hand and they'd be a better match, both being strength sports in a similar format than powerlifting and bodybuilding. But to be honest, it's a whole different animal. The, the amount of technique involved, the amount of mobility involved, the velocity component to the lifts means that there's, there's some pretty different things that happen. And you have to take a pretty different approach to programming than you'd think. There's so much more technical mastery required. Yeah, so it's, it, it, that's been quite the task that I wouldn't say, even say I've had to juggle, but that I've asked my coach Adam Story, who does my programming, to juggle. He's had to become a powerlifting slash Olympic lifting coach and then, you know, at least tolerate me doing curls every once in a while. So, <laughs> actually wanted to pick up on one thing you said there of the, the fact that the sports are very much, all three of them really, the realization of the momentum that you've built from the training up until that point rather than kind of, obviously, there is a contribution of how you perform on the day, but I think it's very much within a, a threshold as opposed to really how much preparation you've done. And then even if you have a bad day, you might lose 5%, for example. With the um, what you said about, so you, you have a, a program that would revolve around a squat, a bench, a horizontal press, and a deadlift. But then, as you said, the rules do change very much when you're, when you're weightlifting. Do you have to then almost take a whole new focus or make everything revolve around a central component of the velocity and the training the technique? Or do you still keep in the squat, the bench, the deadlift as the sort of cornerstones of your program? Well, you know, there, there's a number of ways to approach it. I think the way that, that okay, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to try to go over every way you can approach it, but I will say that the way we've approached it with some relative success has been that you have kind of a focus of your training given where you are in the competition season. So, you know, if you're going to get on the Olympic lifting platform, which I've done three times now, and if you're going to get on the powerlifting platform, obviously the, the training blocks are going to look different when you're six weeks out from an Olympic lifting meet rather than a powerlifting meet. So essentially, you, you put something kind of on the back burner. Uh, so when you're close to an Olympic lifting meet, you know, my squats became high bar half the time instead of low bar like I normally squat. And my sumo deadlift volume goes down and my clean pull kind of deadlift goes up. And then I spend, you know, two of my four or five workouts a week strictly on the Olympic lifts and sometimes three. And then basically, I've just got one day to bench to kind of keep that pattern. And then most of my time goes into practicing technique on the Olympic lifts. And then the flip side of that, when I get close to an Olympic lifting meet, the Olympic lifts take a backseat and are only one day a week. And then I'm benching and squatting two to three times a week and deadlifting one to two times a week. So I think it really just comes down to intelligent block training, kind of thinking what transfers to what. You know, obviously the big gap in Olympic lifting is that it's not going to build your bench. But you'd be surprised how little transfers from a squat and a deadlift to a successful clean and jerk and snatch. The best clean and jerk I've done is, is 115, or 116, no 115. And yes, that one kilo difference makes, makes a difference. Yet, I've squatted you know, 222 in the gym and 220 in the meet. And if you were to look at a good Olympic lifter who can squat 220, he's probably clean and jerking 170, you know, if they have a good transfer from one to the other. So yeah, it either means that I'm, I'm unnecessarily strong for my skill level, which is the case, or I'm just a really shitty Olympic lifter, which it's probably a little bit of both. I think so. it's kind of a, um, a mismatch between an Olympic lifter wanting to have as low a possible squat for their Olympic lifts compared to a powerlifter who just wants a bigger squat possible and 
then becoming as efficient as a percentage of your maxes versus just having big maxes for the for the sake of it. At least when you consider the squat to be your favourite assistance isolation movement as opposed to a, uh, a full lift. Exactly. So kind of leading on from that, Eric, you've you've more or less covered it, but I think everybody's very keen to know how the bigger names in, in fitness, like how they currently train. So obviously like at the minute there's RPE, there's DUP, there's Westside, there's kind of all these concepts that get thrown around and people tend to categorize themselves into one camp. So do you want to just briefly both discuss how, how you train at the minute and then are you, have you tried any of these, you know, any of the more recent popularized methods like RPE or daily periodization? So, Albert, do you, you want to go first? If since Eric's just spoken about it briefly. Well, I'm I'm doing the DUPs, as the kids say, and it's actually a program that Eric put together. Helmsco, dude, Helmsco. The main reason I'm running that right now is because I think my squad is probably the one movement that's just really far behind from a technical standpoint. So it's letting me squat often, but other than that, I'm not doing too much volume uh, for my legs, and it's letting me focus a lot on my upper body stuff. So that's what I'm doing now. I think I've done a little bit of everything at some point. I've done powerlifting specific programs, if you can call them. I've, I've done Shiko in the past. So yeah, I've, I've, I've experimented with a lot of things in my youth, but I think to tell you the truth, the, the programs that have worked the best for me, it, it's it's actually, and that's one of the reasons I'm running this current program, is it's usually been, you know, the simple stuff that keeps me from making the errors I'm, I'm prone to do. And I think my biggest one is I tend to be a volume junkie. In this program, because the frequency is so high, I feel like I'm doing a lot of volume, but I'm really not. So, you know, again, the programs that, that I do run typically, they're, they're, they're things that I find fun, uh, but at the same time, they also, um, they're there to cover cover my ass. I, I'm still prone to making these, I guess you could call them crimes of passion, because I love my training and I'm very attached to, you know, the, the end result. So yeah, that's what I'm doing now it, it's really simple and not sexy not at all I think it seems, I, I don't know, but Yusuf and I are both doing a DUP program, which, which Eric wrote. So I imagine they're pretty similar. But how do, you, how do you find the squatting multiple times a week? Was that something you were used to before you started that split or is that a, a recent development? I was squatting three times a week prior to that, so it wasn't too big of a change. And I think if anything, so long as I built up fairly early on, because my torso tends to be the limiting factor. Everything else on me uh, is, is kind of made for a squat. It wasn't too much of an issue. I think uh, if anything, yeah, if anything, the conventional deadlift right now that I'm doing quite frequently, because I've, I've committed to doing that one, just because I get so much carryover into my sumo when I, I, I do go back. Uh, no, it wasn't too hard. It wasn't too hard. And I find a, a lot of fun to go in there and look forward to at least one of these big lifts every day because again everything else is just kind of mindless you know sitting there curl i mean i can break it down and try to have this perfect form but it's nowhere near as, as mentally engaging as or frustrating at times which is kind of fun as you know a squat or a deadlift so what about you eric are you doing a dup program written by eric helms as well or something <laughs> no I, I i think you could probably quantify what i'm doing as dup as well given that i have different focuses on each day of the week based on, on what i need to do whether that's you know I'm I'm in very much in a powerlifting block right now because I have a hip injury that prevents me from really doing the deep Olympic lifts, and that may be kind of the theme for my training from now on. But to not not really get too much into that, I am on a what you probably classify as a powerlifting program with one day a week where I do some power snatch, power clean, and jerk accessory work. 
which I've just found really keeps my shoulders healthy. I've maybe because of that end range of motion, long muscle length, you know, power development and strength development overhead. I've been able to, I bench max legal width for IPF and I do it multiple times per week. And this is the first time ever in my career. And I've only been, you know, getting older that I've had no shoulder issues at all with that. So that's interesting anecdote. So I've, I've kind of just kept it in, even though I may not be getting a lot better at the Olympic lifts anyway. So I'm going to take a step back from the question about my training, because like you said, everyone wants to know what certain people who may be more prominent in the industry are doing. And I sometimes I think that's a bit of a pitfall because they start to think that program A or program B or whatever the sexy the latest ebook is, is, is the answer. But I, I kind of give two conflicting pieces of advice to people all the time. First, I say, you know, if you're going to start a program, just do it. Just follow it. And then I also tell people, reverse engineer that so that they understand. So it sounds like I'm telling them, figure out what the constituent parts are and change it. The reality is, is when you're new to training and you're still kind of hopping from ebook to ebook, like each one's the new golden nugget, you probably will just make it worse if you change it. But I do think you should understand why the program is what it is. Like 531 isn't 531. It's just a collection of lifts, a certain frequency, a certain intensity and a certain level of volume. And I think it's important to understand that. So at least when you don't feel comfortable programming, you can look at these different programs, maybe look at the total volume, maybe look at the frequency of training, maybe look at the intensities at what you're training at and figure out which ones might bridge well together and which ones are similar to other programs you've had success with. Because none of them are magic, you know? And there's a reason why Berto and I have both done almost everything in terms of programming is because it all works. So long as it's at least intelligently designed in some manner is progressive and you attack it with three D's, it's gonna produce progress. But hopping around a lot, especially in your earlier years, but still actually spending enough time on it. When I say hopping around, I don't mean every two weeks, I mean like every four months. Gives you an experience with a broad range of different ways of approaching training and you get a better sense of what happens to work for you to produce an efficient adaptation. I think a big realization for me was, um, I think for a long time I, I tried to identify myself with one specific approach. So I was like, I'm, I'm the guy that does 531 or I'm the guy that does West Side. You know, sticking with something for a while and letting it letting it run its course and then when it stopped working switching to something else I think definitely allows you to learn training from different points of view mm -hmm. and just taking it as you know I've trained to be a better powerlifter or I trained to be a better bodybuilder rather than I'm somebody who does DUP because that's what Lane Norton did for example I think um, for me as well that delayed the process of me moving on to something I would end up because I felt it was almost like a hit to my pride if I identify with doing a certain thing and then it realised it doesn't work but I feel like I'm almost losing a part of myself by ceasing doing that so it would keep me stuck in wrong directions for slightly longer than it should have as opposed to being open and inclusive as you guys profess. Because it's very natural and normal and healthy to seek acceptance from your social peers and to be part of a group, that's just what humans do. I think that happens within those subgroups, like people, you know, they like the philosophy or they read something that someone does and they go, that makes sense, I'm going to be a, a shiko lifter or whatever. And that's... You know, that's okay, that's good. It's good to get that community support, but at the same time to be able to understand that you can hold yourself back by just aligning yourself in, in a more fanatical version of that, you know, and, and kind of being the, uh, the disciple of, you know, the hit disciple or the, the Arnold Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding disciple or whatever it is. It's that, that really can just prevent you from trying other aspects of training. And I would say, you know, just like you guys were both, both recently on a, an auto-regulated RPE-based program, even though in both your cases we decided, you know, let's, we should take a step away from that. I think that was very valuable because it creates awareness. You see what are the things that came from that that are beneficial 
beneficial and what maybe we can improve upon. And I think that is more valuable than did your squat go up six kgs or seven for a, for a long-term career. Definitely. I think switching over from an RPE-based template, which is very, you know, you're not, you're not really sure what you're doing and you're always reading yourself and how you respond to decide what the next set is. Switching from that to something which is just, I'm doing this many reps for this many sets, this amount of weight, is very, it makes you just appreciate having a, a program to follow apart from anything. One question I wanted to ask you based on what you were saying about benching and it, and it having a stress on your shoulders or having a hip injury. How do you find that you manage the, the increased frequency on the bigger lifts in terms of mobility? Do you find that you need to increase the amount of soft tissue work and that kind of thing you do? Do you have like a mobility routine you follow or, or do you just kind of adapt and, and let, let it take its course? A little bit of both. So in my specific case, I was seeing a physio once a week. I was even experimenting with, with a chiropractor I was doing half an hour of, of soft tissue work and mobility drills every day, and I was beat up bad when my hip was at its worst. And it really came down to just not realizing what the core root of what was bothering my hip was. Sometimes it's just one big thing, and it doesn't matter how much you do of all this other stuff. And for me, when I finally actually got some scans done, I confirmed what I suspected, that I did have actually FAI which is femoral acetabular impingement, which just means that basically either the, you know, the lip of your acetabulum on your hip or the femur where those two areas get closest have developed a bone growth that are impacting each other and messing up the soft tissues around them, the labrum and, and just all the surrounding musculature. And that shifts your motor pattern and then you get compensatory injuries. Like I was feeling all kinds of IT band, knee pain and lower back pain on the side of my hip, on the, on the side of my body that my hip injury wasn't. So I was, you know, torsioning in the squat to get depth. And once I understood that, and once I just said, well, I, I basically can't go deep, we did a cycle of training where I was just doing box squats, well above parallel to start, with the goal of saying, let's see how far down we can work it and find out where the exact angle of squat I can go without messing up the impingement. Cut out all the deep Olympic lifts, and then all of a sudden, I felt like I could just walk into the gym, throw on my max and squat every day if I wanted to on a box at least. All of my issues just went away. My lower back pain was gone. I could my, my deadlift started progressing again. My squat came back up. I was able to deadlift more than once every two weeks. So for me, it was kind of one of these things where I was like trying to build a sandcastle wall to stop the tide coming in. I just couldn't stop it because I was literally slamming my femur into my, um, into my labrum every time I would go deep. And it doesn't matter if I can get my glutes to fire if that's gonna happen, right? So anyway, now I've found that I can basically squat at meat depth with a box as much as I want to, and as long as I keep myself from messing with loads that might produce failure on heavy squats, because I don't really have an option if I miss it and go depth, I need to either rely on fantastic spotters or just kick myself in my labrum. If I'm smart with my squats, and if I don't do the deep Olympic lifts, I'm 100% fine, and the frequency is no issue. That said, I still do movement drills, I still do warm-ups, I still make sure that I feel a good mind-muscle connection, and I do give almost all of my clients some form of mobility drills. And they all look pretty similar because most of my clients do two things. They lift heavy things and then they sit in front of a computer with terrible posture at least six hours a day. So yeah, I focus on spending a little more time getting them moving before they move heavy weights. And mobility is an interesting thing. I've talked about it before, but essentially you need the mobility you need, not necessarily more than that. You don't need to become a ninja or a yogi by the time you squat. And that can actually have you know, a detrimental effect if you're really working on the kind of a long muscle length flexibility side of it too much. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much of quote-unquote mobility is neuromuscular and just getting your body in a place of having a good awareness of itself and moving in certain areas. So like, you know, 
the stuff we think of glute activation, maybe it's just our bodies getting used to proper knee tracking. And yeah, you do have to fire your glute for that to happen, but maybe it's more of just being aware of where your knee is and is in space under load in certain patterns. Sure, some of it might be soft tissue. At least we're just feeling better, but I think a lot of it is actually just kind of that holistic, full-body neuromuscular kind of awareness that I think is very valuable, even if you know the reasons why we thought mobility worked were different before. I think that's something critical that you mentioned there of the same principle coming back to reverse engineering the problem, working out what it actually was. And so with your hip pain, you know, as you said, it, it only started to fix when you'd reverse engineered it, found what the actual cause was, and then been able to adjust your programming as a result. And I think a lot of people see things on MWOD and just kind of haphazardly do mobility without any real focus on what their specific restrictions will be. You know, you just get the foam roller out and roll around on it without some kind of direction. And I think as a result, they're probably going to not get the most out of what they could be with mobility. One thing I'd like to ask, you know, because you, you brought up frequency. I think for the longest time, I identified myself as one of those guys that just couldn't deadlift that frequently. And I go back to the videos of that specific time frame and the reason I would hurt when I would deadlift too frequently is because I just was doing it wrong. So I think, um, you know, just kind of kind of how Eric mentioned in that quite often we look into mobility and sometimes even joint supplements, you know, it's like guys will ask me, so what can I take from my joints? And it's like, you know what, I think more than anything, I really want to see how you're moving in the weight room. And I can almost guarantee you adjusting what you're doing in there, it's probably going to pay off way more than doubling your fish oil intake or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just a lot of little things that I think probably, yeah, this is the longest I've gone without some kind of, you know, major injury. And I think a lot of it has to do with just more self-awareness in the weight room. And it's it's little things. Like, I'm such a form Nazi sometimes. Like, if I see a guy rowing and his anterior shoulder's coming in, I'm like, oh, my God, dude, you have <laughs> issues going on there. I could never do that. You know, maybe too much. But it's, it's helped me stay healthy. And this is the most frequency I've used in, in certain regions of my body and, and specifically with certain movements that you, you would label as high-risk so, yeah, I think it all goes back to, to healthy movement, and then we can start supplementing with the, all the other stuff. Very interesting about the, the deadlift and the frequency, and I certainly feel I can't deadlift very frequently, but uh, maybe I've got the same issue as yourself. I probably have, and I think, yeah, as you said, it comes back down to having the self-awareness and not taking things as, as a given is a pretty cool lesson. So I wonder if we can take a slightly different direction at the moment, because obviously we posted a Facebook status saying we're interviewing you guys, and there was a flood of questions about nutrition and what a day of eating looks like for you guys. And I think because Eric's pre-warned with not just listening to what Alberto Nunez does in a daily diet and just copying that, <laughs> replicating <laughs> it, hoping that you'll get silly lean, it would be good to, yeah, to get some insight on that. So Eric, do you want to go first? Well, sure. To give some context, there was a five-year period from when I first prepped for my first show to about halfway through my 2011 off-season for my last bodybuilding prep, where I would say nine out of ten days, I was weighing and tracking all my food. And the days when I couldn't weigh, I was eyeballing and entering it. And there was a point where I was still using Fitday for all you old schooler guys. And on a cable modem, back in like 2009 uh, it would take about 10 minutes for my fit day custom food list to load just to tell you how how, how in deep i was <coughs> how ocd it was and uh when i switched to my fitness pal on the the insistence of my fellow coaches who were like dude it's just way better you don't need to save these custom foods it's everyone is entering their foods you know you got this community database you can just find everything it was like breaking up with a girlfriend i'd been with for for six years so given that i had that back background 
I like to tell people without trying to sound arrogant about it that when I look at foods, it's kind of like when Neo looks at the world and he sees the ones and zeros in the matrix. I know I, I can't not know how many calories and macros I have by the end of the day, and I even test myself every once in a while. I, I had uh, my buddy, my good buddy Scott, who I'm doing a PhD with. He had these two yams that he, were at his desk, and, I was like, and he was like, he, he tested me. He's like, how, how many, uh, how big do you think these are? And I was like, oh, that one looks like it's about 65 grams. And he's like, what, what about this one? I was like, I think, I think they're almost the same size. And we busted out my food scale, and one was 66, and the other was also 66. <laughs> so. Just to give a little bit of a reliability study to my to my, my madness. So anyway, that said, I'm in the off season. I've let go a lot of my OCD behaviors, and I do what is very sustainable and easy for me to do, which is putting myself at about maintenance or slightly above it most of the time. And then when meets come around, getting back to maintenance just to make sure that I'm at the body weight I know I can be my strongest at, which is right about 90 to 92 in terms of my wolf score. And I basically eat, on average per week, I'll give you the weekly average, about 32 to 3,300 calories per day. And I try to get in at least 1.6 grams per kg of protein. And it sometimes gets as high as about a gram per pound on a day-to-day -day basis. And I make sure I get a couple servings of fruit and vegetables every day. And besides that, I pretty much just fill it in. Uh, some days I will hit like 4,000 calories. Like I typically go to a little quiz night with my buddies at, at a pub on Tuesday. And I have a, a, you know, a margarita pizza by myself. I might even have a cider. Oh, God. And uh, and then, you know, some beer battered chips. So like those days, my calories gets pretty high. And then typically the day afterwards, they're down around, you know, 2,400 or something like that. And then the week they average out. And I, for the last two years, I've been within 90 to 92 and a half. And, you know, for me, as much as people struggle against the idea, I don't think regular weight gain should be a part of my, my progress. It should be seeing how my body comp changes at different weights and making sure I'm getting stronger. And I can say this is the, the best I've ever looked at about 91 kg and the strongest I've ever been. So uh, it's certainly working for me. Awesome. We appreciate the, uh, the conversion to kilos, by the way. No problem. If everything's being kilograms. Alberto, do you want to go next? I like how you ended that. It works for me, bro. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm just coming off a, a contest season, so my situation is a bit different than Eric's. I'm just trying to find my happy intake right now. I think I'm definitely out of that danger zone. It's been about four weeks now, and I'm, I've probably put on about five pounds. And five pounds for me, five pounds off contest weight is enough to I feel good. You know, I feel good, and, and my energy levels are way more stable at this point. And I think I'm kind of in a similar stage as Eric, where you know I do want to see some weight gain at a certain point. But the way I like to compare, you know, when I decide to, okay, let's move on and start adding some more food, it's the whole cup analogy. And it's basically, you know, I have a, this big of a cup. This is my current weight at 165 or so. And then, you know, when that gets filled up and I'm having a hard time getting any stronger, what I'll do is I'll start to intentionally move up in weight and I guess switch from a V6 engine to a V8 engine. So I'm hanging around here, hopefully maybe I'll do a few meets at 165 and then eventually move on and become a really bad uh, 181er. I don't know the conversions <laughs> to that. But right now it's, it's, it's very straightforward. I have four protein feedings a day and my calories are anywhere from, depends on how bad I've been. Uh, anywhere from 34 to 4,100 calories a day. Somewhere in there's my ha my happy place. And, you know, depending on how much volume there is in that training cycle and how active I am. You know, typically I'm not a breakfast guy. I was during prep, but it's funny how that changes right away. So at this point, I'm typically fasted until noon or so. 
and I'll have a quest bar or two and then head over to the gym and eat right after and then eat a large dinner. And that's basically how, how I do things. But yeah, very simple. And I, I kind of like Eric, we've kind of learned to, you know, I think we all started with these pretend rules. And, you know, the longer we've done this, the, the more we've minimized our approach in terms of, you know, how specific we get. And, and I guess, again, there's there's like four rules now or something like that. You know, calories, protein intake, and do it often. But to tell you the truth, I, I have found this to be more effective than any other period in my life where, you know, either, you know, one, I felt like I had to gain weight, which I think that was a rule for both Eric and I. I we didn't gain weight during a week. It was time to move on. But, you know, failure of a week. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I've been weight training for 15 years now, so it's not like I'm looking for a surplus. I'm just more so looking to not create any unintentional fat loss and eat enough to progress. I think it's, it's interesting, Albert, that you mentioned the, the shift between prep and off-season and your, your preferences to, to when you eat. Because I think something that we've noticed in both ourselves and with clients as well is the neurosis that comes with A, a calorie deficit and dieting, and then B, low levels of body fat, and how that feeds into kind of obsessing over meal frequency, obsessing over the, the specifics, and then also hunger becoming this a more, much more of a pervasive issue in terms of the distance between the plan that you're trying to be on and then what you actually end up doing. I, I imagine with, with coaching a lot of bodybuilders in, in their prep season, how do you go about encouraging and, and improving people's adherence to a plan and, and dealing with A, the neuroses that, that come with a contest prep, and then B, the, the hunger as it kind of linearly gets worse and worse towards the end? I'll take first crack at that. I want to say, first off, we, we've kind of talked about our approaches a little bit, and you guys know kind of how I've approached your nutrition, but there should, can, and will be differences between clients. Like, I do have some guys who are hitting all their macros on a day-to-day -day basis within five grams and weighing everything because they're in the middle of a contest prep. And then I have other guys who have a calorie range and a protein target because they're not, you know? So there should be different approaches with different clients. Now, in the specific case of someone who has to get really lean or diet down for a show, neuroses, like you guys said, are pretty much gonna happen to some degree. And it's just a matter of managing them rather than trying to avoid them. And I would say that there are good neuroses and there's bad neuroses. I try to tell clients, look, you know, especially during the reverse diet period, that we won't, don't just want to try to get rid of all of those little crazy weird things you've developed over the course of the last six months because the reason you developed them in the first place is to give yourself a sense of security, control, and structure while you're doing something that's pretty stressful and is very, very intimidating um, and that your body is going to fight you during, during the process of doing it. So there needs to be kind of an awareness of why am I doing it? Is it okay? Is it getting in the way of other behavior? making me more or less stressful and and then approaching it from kind of that angle and my mic was did you guys hear me yeah it broke up a little bit but we got the gist okay. of what you said yeah okay so so yeah big picture thing is evaluate things as they go and you know let go of any and all neuro neurotic behaviors that aren't serving you and realize that some are actually going to give you a sense of comfort and then really it's just kind of a case-by-case week-by-week basis and learning to accept the fact that if your goal is to get on stage between five to seven percent body fat you're going to have some of these things crop up and it's a matter of managing versus saying there's a magic diet that can make you not have them for sure yeah and it takes a few cracks at it too you're not going to get it right the first time and i think you know people look at their preps and they're like well you know i've 
improved in terms of you know conditioning muscularity but there's also that other aspect of you know what happens outside of the physique itself you just get better every time you know everything that eric mentioned you you get way better at knowing what to anticipate from yourself what you're prone to doing and i think yeah it's just one of those things you have to do a few times so if, if someone out there is listening and they just got done with their first prep and they're like well I, I i'm never gonna do that again because of this this and that it, it gets better every time one of these days my goal is to sneak a prep behind melissa's back and just tell her that uh we have a show this saturday so um one day i might be aiming too high but hopefully cool she's gonna see you you know that right <laughs> lights <laughs> off dude lights off <laughs> we're both shy with regard to the, the hunger and the severity of that, do you think that's more to do with the length of the time and under deficit or the severity of the deficit, or is it just to do with kind of total body fat? Eric, yes. Do you think? The answer to that is yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can find guys who do the more old school approach and diet 12 to 16 weeks and they get decently lean, but they experience some crazy cravings. They may just have a slightly different pathway and route. It's because maybe their diet was very restrictive and maybe they felt that kind of acute hunger because their, their calories were so low and the rate at which their body fat was decreasing, uh, that probably even has an impact as well. And if you look at studies on rate of weight loss, uh, you start to see some, some things happen, even though they may not necessarily be hitting a body fat level that you think is, is really, really low yet all those things impact it and if, if you were to ever kind of like map out all of the the things that were related to hunger on like just kind of like a brain chart you'd need a piece of poster paper that would take up a full wall and then that'd be 10 percent of it so it's extremely complex it has behavioral environmental social psychological and physiological roots and they all interplay there's like i said that you can you can manage it and you can definitely get to a place of acceptance with it if you know it's normal know it's going to happen and that's probably honestly that your your biggest tool is just kind of knowing yeah there some some suffering is normal and it's not bad and it's going to happen during prep and you're going to get food focused but if you can kind of remind yourself I still have food I'm not going to die and when I wake up tomorrow I get my macros all over again you you can you can really kind of avoid some of that stuff because there there are definitely people out there in the world you know not necessarily sympathetic to bodybuilders who wake up the next day and there aren't macros and it's not their choice you know it's not just a matter of not eating more it's a matter of I just don't have food because I'm extremely, you know, poor. I think I remember hearing Alberto saying that, like, after after a meal, even though you're shredded and, and hungry and worrying about, like, the last grain of rice, that you're still nourished and still alive and everything's still fine. It's just, you know, you're exaggerating something and making the hunger seem like a massive problem. So, again, when we asked if anybody had any questions on Facebook, another common thread that people were mentioning was kind of 3DMJ as, a, as an online business. And obviously, you're kind of in the spotlight at the minute with coaching a lot of big names in the both natural bodybuilding and powerlifting. And people were wanting to know how you, how you built your name as 3DMJ and then what difficulties that you overcame in getting to where you are today. Yeah, I think initially we really just wanted to help out the local folks around here. You know, everyone was just so behind. I think that my second season, you know, if I can just go back and try to recollect, I think I'd say roughly 90% of competitors were cutting water backstage. So, yeah, they, they were in need of help and then, you know, we thought we could help. And the funny thing is, I think it was, it was more than anything a timing. You know, me and Eric were quite active on the bodybuilding.com forums and especially the contest prep section. I think we were just really fortunate in that, again, our, our introduction to, to bodybuilding, you know, our initial contacts were 
all the right people. You know, we were raised right, you could say, for the lack of a better way of putting it. And we were able to pass it on in, in an efficient manner. So I think people, initially, we didn't even want to be coaches. I think more than anything, we wanted to be a magazine for the sport. But, you know, when you're a magazine, you put out articles, you put out information, and then people started to inquire, well, can you help me? And it kind of just, you know, in a very organic fashion, just kind of grew. And I think that that's the main reason we've done so well. We haven't intentionally searched for growth. If anything, we've tried to stun it over time, you know, slow it down quite a bit in order to keep quality. And I think that that's been the biggest factor is it, you know, just kind of letting things take its natural course. And, you know, when I look back to how, what started 3D Muscle Journey,